welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 253. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Man, I am stuffed from my awesome 2020 American Thanksgiving dinner. This is the part of the show where I pretend that Thanksgiving has already happened for me. Because uh, I'm recording this in advance of the holiday. I hope that all of you had a good holiday, um, wherever you are. And you know, if it wasn't a holiday where you are, I hope you had a good day. Because we could use a few of those right now. Pardon me while I break podcasting rules and take a bite of something. What's this? A piece of toast? A pretzel stick? Popcorn? What blockhead cooked all this? Boy, that was tasty. You should thank me because I edited out the screams of the thing that I took a bite of because I just didn't think you'd want to listen to that. So uh, I, I can't promise I'll get all the screams out in the course of the episode, but I will try. All right. A couple episodes back, Henry made a comment about the 2600 and he mistakenly uh, referred to it as the 2800, mixing it up with the 7800. Sean Courtney, friend of the show, hi Sean, wrote in to point out that Henry may actually not have made a mistake He might actually, at least this is my interpretation, he might actually be a Japanese gamer. He sent me a link to an article from FreelancerGames.com. The article says that the 2800 was Atari's entry into the Japanese home video game sweepstakes. Although various companies like Epoch had imported and distributed the 2600 in Japan, it was never officially supported nor was it heavily promoted. Essentially a restyled 2600, the 2800 made its debut in the spring of 1983. Although it's not known why Atari decided to alter the design for Japan, apparently Sears thought enough of the system to rename it the Sears Video Arcade 2 and sell it in the U.S. as such. The 2800's design is reminiscent of the 5200, 7800, and 2600 Junior, which isn't surprising given that Atari seemed to have an infatuation of black plastic and the sleek black look that first originated from the unreleased remote-controlled VCS 2700. I never heard of that one either. I can't imagine what a remote-controlled thing looked like in the early 80s. I had enough uh, remote-controlled cars and whatnot to uh, imagine that perhaps it was not the most attractive thing in the world. The controller is a combination joystick and paddle, although for four-player gaming like Warlords... Oh man, Warlords is a fun game, especially if you have four people to play with. Three other people to play with. But as I've mentioned many times, I'm a podcaster and I have no friends. Anyway, so if you play a game like that, four-player game... You need two pairs of paddle controllers, as usual. Around 30 games were released by Atari in Japan, although the boxes were in Japanese and had a silver-red color that is similar to the 82-83-2600 games released in the U.S., Joust, Centipede, etc. The cartridges themselves had identical labels as the ones that were available in America, most likely to reduce costs. Unfortunately, the 2800 never had a chance in Japan. It was brought to market just months before Nintendo's Famicom NES, er, Famicom, NES in America. I had one of those. It was fun. And then my parents gave it away sometime after I left home. I'm still not happy about that. Curse you, mom and dad. Anyway, so the NES comes along just uh, months later, and Japanese gamers quickly snapped up all available Famicom systems as they were brought to stores. Perhaps if Atari had released the system in 79 or 80, the 2800 might have had a a shot. So there you go. I suspect Henry just was a uh, Japanese gamer in a previous life. That's all that's going on here. So uh, he wasn't mistaken. He was just dipping into his past. 
No problem. You're good, Henry. Henry's not actually here. He's sleeping off his turkey from Thanksgiving. I was looking at things, as I do, because I have eyes. I want to do a little housekeeping here, because I'm not sure if I read Michael Tyler's comment on Chase the Chuck Wagon. Uh, Hi, Michael. He posted a thing on uh, the Patreon a while back about Chase the Chuck Wagon. And when I was looking at stuff the other day, I can't remember if I read the comment on the show. So if I didn't, I want to rectify that now. If I did, just consider this the band playing one of the old favorites or something, uh, along with all the new stuff. I know, it's a terrible comparison. But anyway, so Michael wrote, Chase the Chuck Wagon. That was episode 249, by the way. If you haven't listened to it yet, go do that. Because it was a fun game, odd game, uh, and a fun episode, if I do say so myself. Uh, So Michael wrote, Chase the Chuck Wagon is the perfect combination of being ludicrously super rare and overpriced and awful gameplay. (laughs) Unfortunately for Perina, my cat prefers nine lives. That is if I owned a cat. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, It's always fun to stick it to Perina. Appreciate that. Do they still make nine lives? I guess they do. I mean... I have a cat. I had two until recently, sadly. But they never got. They never enjoyed nine lives. I think we tried to give them that. They were, and the one still is, I'm drawing a blank on what they eat now. I think it's friskies, but it's not like it's the wet stuff. And even worse, it's the wet stuff that comes in the little, it's not in the round cans. It's in the little plastic uh, cups that you have to rip the foil off of and you can't rip the foil off without getting some of the juice from the food on your hands. And it's disgusting and not much fun, especially at 6 in the morning uh, when the cat insists on being fed. Which isn't so bad on a weekday, although it's not fun. Um, but it sucks on the weekend because cat doesn't care that you don't have to set your alarm uh, because her alarm is still active and she wants to be fed at 6 in the morning, whether you would have liked to sleep in or not. Pet ownership is awesome, folks. So, thanks for the comment, Michael, and welcome to our new sponsor, Nine Lives. There, I feel better now. All right, well, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is, I feel like there should be uh, some triumphant music here. Oh, all right, I'll put some in. Lord of the Rings, Journey to Rivendell from Parker Brothers, which still makes me laugh. I know they made Atari games, but when I think Parker Brothers, I think classic board games like I grew up with, like Monopoly and uh, all the other ones that I'm drawing a blank on right now. That's what I think of. So this is a game that was scheduled to be released in 1983, but ended up not being released and was shelved mysteriously in a big wooden crate in that warehouse with the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Until one day, Marcus Brody was in there with uh, Indiana Jones looking for the uh, Ark and found this game instead and released it to the world. Unfortunately, when you play it, your face melts. But you know, I- I'm getting used to it. You know, we wear these masks now because of COVID anyway, so it's not so bad. Uh, anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, so Atari Age discovered the prototype, discovered in quotes, I guess, in 2001, and released the ROM into the world. I've never met anybody from Atari Age, but I'm guessing they all have melted faces now. 
which is fine. It's cool. This game should not be confused, by the way, with Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, which is a homebrew, which I have not played. But if anyone has any thoughts on that game, too, let me know, and maybe I'll play it sometime. Because this was an unreleased prototype, I don't have a manual for it. But from what I've read in other places, my sense is that basically what you do in the game is you start out in Hobbiton. You're Frodo, I guess. And you start out in Hobbiton, which when I was playing the game, I'll talk about this in the field report, really just looks like a row after row of Swiss chalets. I don't get a whole Hobbit house feel from it, but that's okay. Basically, the whole game is you running around. So you start out in Hobbiton. Uh, you're there with Sam DMG, who is a little red guy on the screen. You, on this screen and some of the screens... Your little square cursor. In other screens, you have more of a, a human-esque, or hobbit-esque, as I sh should say, form. I, I should preface all of this talk about this game with, I have read all of the Lord of the Rings books and The Hobbit. I've seen all the films, but I am not... I, I, I enjoy the world that Tolkien built. I appreciate it, uh, the accomplishment, but I am not a Lord of the Rings freak. I don't have the stuff memorized. I don't watch the movies and read the books over and over again. I am not an expert. I have a sense of what the world is. I enjoy the world when I'm in it. I have enjoyed the world when I was in it for these games or for these books and movies, but I don't spend a lot of time with them outside of that. All of which is to say, if I mispronounce a term or a concept or something, don't get mad at me because that's where I'm coming from. I'm a casual fan, not a fanatic. So you start out in Hobbiton, as I said, your little cursor to leave town, you go one screen in any direction. Going to left brings you to the road. Going either up or right brings you to the forest. I guess technically it's not any direction because if you try to go down from Hobbiton, you can't go anywhere. Frodo can only take two hits before he dies. Hits meaning the ring wraiths or Nazgul. I think that's how you say it. Gets you. What happens is when you go into the forest, the Nazgul is there to pursue you, and if he touches you, you are wounded. Uh, you, if you get hit by the Nazgul or you sit in the forest too long, meaning more than four units of time, you are wounded. And like I said, you can only take three hits before you die, which I guess means losing three units of time. Well, losing, losing four units of time three different times, so I guess 12 units of time. There's no health. You can't stumble over some health in the game. You can't regenerate your, your, uh, yourself. Various characters that you pick up along the way, like Sam, starting out at the beginning, can protect you from the Nazgul. There are 16 units of time in a day. Every second or so, your character blinks, and every four blinks equals one unit of time. You can tell what time of day it is. And this, honestly, this may be my favorite part of the game. You can tell what time of day it is by watching the hills at the top of the screen. Over the course of the day, the sun slowly sets and the sky behind the hills gets darker and darker until night falls. And it looks really cool on the screen. I, I like that. Just pause here. The look of the game for a 1980s fantasy adventure game actually looks really good. The one screen, I guess the, the road screen maybe is the most disappointing because it's just a green screen with some weird structures on either side. That's a little disappointing. But Hobbiton, even though it doesn't really look like a Hobbit town to me, looks pretty good. The sunset, sunrise stuff is awesome for the time. I didn't actually, I didn't play it a whole lot today. I didn't actually make it to Rivendell, so I don't know what that looks like. Um, I hope it looks okay, but all in all, I, I give it a pass as far as the look of the game. During the night, the Nazgul become more active and speed up considerably and be able to outrun your character. The longer the game lasts, the faster the Nazgul becomes, speeding up a bit each day. 
their initial speed can be changed with the left difficulty switch. I think my left my difficulty switch was set on the easier setting. If you fail to reach Rivendell in a week, seven days, for those of you confused by that, the game ends. I think that's what happened to me in the field report. I think I ran out of days. Or the Nazgul killed me. I'm not entirely sure. There is a map. Press the button, uh, the fire button. You can call up the map. And it, the map is really just the title screen of the game. But if you look, it shows your progress on the road toward Rivendell. The large pluses on the map with the letters next to them are the three towns you can enter. The pluses are the actual towns. H stands for Hobbiton. B stands for Bree. That's where you get Strider. R stands for Rivendell, which is where you're headed. The world of Middle-earth is divided into a grid of 43 by 100 squares, or screens. If you reach the edge of a screen, the world will turn black. That's depressing. And you will not be able to proceed any further in that direction. No world wraparound. The fastest way to travel through Middle-earth is by following the road. While traveling on the road, you move at your top speed and are able to outrun or keep up with, if it's night, the Nazgul. As you travel the road on open land, or open land, you'll occasionally see birds overhead. The birds are spies for Sauron and help the Nazguls find you faster. You can hide yourself from the birds by using the ring. Were the birds a thing in the Lord of the Rings books? Nazgul, Sauron, Rivendell, etc. Yeah, I know all that. But were the birds a thing? I don't remember. So, you can hide from the Nazgul, or from the birds, by using the ring, but this speeds up the Nazgul, so it's not worth it, usually unless you're sure that the Nazgûls are far away. Eventually, the dreaded Nazgûls will show up riding his black horse and making a rather nasty sound, and it really is unpleasant in the game. It's, as far as audio goes, the, the audio is not great in this game. If the Nazgûl appears, your only defense is to run toward the forest or let Sam take the hit if he's with you. Veering off the path brings you to open ground, which looks the same as the road screen in the daytime, which looks the same as the road, but without the road, obviously. You don't move quite as fast here, but you can still outrun the Nazgul in the daytime. The brown roadside buildings are just there to show to slow you down and serve no purpose. Moving through open ground eventually leads you to the forest. The forest is very dangerous. You can hide from the ring wraith, but will wound your party if you stay too long. If your character is wounded in the forest, you'll hear a thunderclap, which I heard, but isn't what I expected, I guess. You'll hear it in the field report. It doesn't really sound to me... If they hadn't told me, oh, that's a thunderclap, that's not what I would have guessed. The screen flashes briefly. Frodo should know better than to take shelter from a thunderstorm under a tree. Various characters can be found in the forest. Ignoring them completely is not a good option. Basically, don't hang out in the forest for too long. If you keep heading north, you eventually come to the Loudwater River. Hobbits can't swim, so you have to find a bridge. Luckily, there are two bridges, which will take you to the other side. The other side of the river, because that's what bridges do, obviously. The other side of the river is completely void of any features, but it really doesn't matter since you're close to winning the game. Make your way to Rivendell, consult your map, and you've won. Basically, when you get to the end, I'm told, the town screen flashes a few pretty colors, but that's about it. While the ring is present in the game, it's not particularly useful other than hiding from the birds, so it's best to only use it sparingly, like in the book. To use it, just press the button while you're not a square. On the road, forest, open land... You'll know you've had the ring on as your character turns gray and a tune plays. The characters you pick up along the way could be Sam Damgee, Strider, or Aragorn, Gandalf, Tom Bombadil, Glorfindel. Basically, all these characters really do is, I was going to say, basically all they just help you move faster. Gandalf and Tom Bombadil, or Tom Bombadil and Glorfindel, basically are there to help you move faster. 
Gandalf protects you from the Nazgul, but he doesn't hang around very long. Strider helps you find Gandalf. Sam Damji is really just there to take hits for you. And all these characters, it seems like, just kind of wander in and out. So that's it. That's basically how you play this game. There's no fighting. You don't have any weapons. I guess that's pretty consistent with the books. I mean, Bilbo had, what was it, Sting, right? His little knife, which to him was like a sword. I think Frodo had a sword too, didn't he? Anyway, none of that in this game. So, such as it is, that is how you play Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast all about life lessons growing up and every episode a segment about music music that i love artists that i admire and sometimes even my own music you can find autobiography of a schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers or you can go to schnookpodcast.com that's s-c-h-n-o-o-k podcast.com And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. So, like I said, Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell was scheduled for release in the winter of 83. Parker Brothers was all set to publish it, advertised it in their 1982 and 83 catalogs as a game to be released for the 2600 and Atari home computer. Oh, that reminds me. I had an Atari home computer, and I had, maybe it was this the Atari home computer version of this game. I don't think so, because it was a text adventure, and you could do things like, it was you and Frodo, yeah, it wasn't this game, it was you and Frodo, it was you as Frodo, and Mary and Pippin, and basically you would type, you know, type in what you wanted the characters to do, like go east, or enter whatever. And mostly what you did was, like the ring wraith would show up, and cleave your skull, and that would be the description. Cleave your skull, or wearing the ring would drive you crazy, and you would go around killing everybody. So there would be commands like, Mary cleaves Frodo's skull, and stuff like that. Uh, it was a weird game. At least it played weird. Anyway, that's, this description reminds me of that. If anyone knows the game I'm talking about, because I don't remember what it was called, let me know. So the game, this game, Journey to Rivendell, was originally advertised under the name Lord of the Rings, period, and in one case as Lord of the Rings. One, described as an adventure of getting Frodo from the Shire to the door at Moria. A description was later changed in the 83 Parker Brothers video games catalog to have Rivendell as the adventurous endpoint instead. That was also the uh, first time the game was referred to as Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell, and it was the last advertisement the game received. The game was never released, and it was believed that little or no work was done on the game's coding. 20 years after the Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell was first announced, in the weeks leading up to the much-anticipated release of the first live-action movie, a former Parker Brothers employee gave a prototype of the game to the operator of the Atari Age website. I don't know how that went down, but I picture it as being like uh, dudes in trench coats in uh, parking garages late at night. Surprisingly, the game was quite complex and seemed to be complete. So we know all the characters, Gamgee, Aragorn, Gandalf, Bombadil, Glorfindel, etc., Due to the low resolution of the Atari 2600 and the lack of an official reference manual, the identities of some of the game characters are debated by players. 
The game's Glorfindel and Tom Bombadil characters are often interpreted as Legolas and Gimli, respectively. Which makes more sense to me, frankly. But again, I'm not a Lord of the Rings expert. A second prototype, labeled WIP.17, was eventually discovered. There are less than 10 bytes of data distinguishing the WIP-17 prototype from the first prototype, which itself was labeled LOTR. The LOTR prototype is believed to be the more finalized version of the two. The two versions, upon reaching Rivendell, play different victory tunes from each other. The tune is noted as sounding distinctly worse in the WIP-17 prototype, and in that prototype the Nazgul are faster with the left difficulty switch set to B. However, the player receives a point bonus for playing with the switch set to A. In the Lord of the Rings prototype, A is the harder difficulty with faster Nazgul and receives this appropriate point bonus. Our friends at Atari Protoss flat out call this game not bad and pretty complex for a 2600 game, but the main problem is it's boring. All you do is run away from things until you reach Rivendell. There's no way to defend yourself, which they describe as an unfortunate side effect of basing a video game off a fantasy novel. I don't think that's true, because I think in the novels and in the movies, Frodo does spend a lot of time running away, and he does spend a lot of time being protected. But he does do some fighting, I think, doesn't he? I don't know. I may be wrong about that. So Frodo says, having Frodo take out his sword and slice the Nazgul in two just wouldn't fit the character, but would make for a more exciting game. Lord of the Rings was never released, Frodo says, due to two different parties owning the rights to the characters. Tolkien's son owned one of the set of rights to the books, and some company owned the other set of rights, movies, games, action figures. Parker Brothers was able to get permission from one group, but not the other, so the project stalled. I don't know if any of this is true. This is just what Protoss uh, is saying about it. The game is average, probably wouldn't have been a great seller. But of course, with Lord of the Rings' name on it, rabid fans probably would have gobbled it up anyway. Woodrain Wonderland says that although people have complained for years about Raiders of the Lost Ark with their dual control movement and inventory system, Lord of the Rings during the Rivendell proves that the Raiders system, clunky as it was, offers one of the few ways a programmer can develop an enjoyable RPG on the system. Without it, you're not doing much more than running around, which is essentially all Lord of the Rings has to offer. I'll pause here and say that, complicated as it is, I actually kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark's setup, with the one controller for running around, the other for inventory. The game itself is frustrating, but, but yes, it's a much better way to do this kind of game than Lord of the Rings accomplished. This reviewer says that although the setup for the game sounds like an exciting journey, in reality it is extremely repetitious. In order to capture the sprawling nature of the tale, Parker Brothers made the game hundreds of screens huge, but in reality it's just a few scenes. Town, forest, open area, path, river, repeated over and over again. The title screen comes with a handy map, not to mention a handsome pixelated rendering of the familiar Lord of the Rings calligraphy, but you can only access it while you're in a town or a forest, which is troublesome because the game gives you a wound meaning you lose one of three lives if you spend too long in the forest. Avoiding the ring wraiths is troublesome. It's troublesome to have to run away. It's troublesome to have to hide in the forest. Would have been nice to have even one weapon. Some say Lord of the Rings is pretty much complete, but I'm not convinced, this reviewer says. It's worth checking out just to consider what might have been, but as a game, it's pretty boring. No letter grade. Wow. He so disliked it, he wouldn't even give it a grade. Interesting. To all of this, Atari age adds this information. A prototype box was actually created for the game and was sold on eBay in 2001. Most likely the box was used for display purposes at one of the CES shows in the 80s and is probably blank on the back. Supposedly there were also mock-ups sent to Toys R Us stores for promotional purposes. The actual prototype PCB 
was discovered recently by Atari agents, subsequently archived and presented to the public. That would be one of those uh, late-night parking garage transactions. That's my guess, anyway. According to the giant list of classic game programmers, the game was programmed by Mark Lesser, who also programmed Frogger 2 for the 2600 in the late 90s. Mark worked for Electronic Arts on their best-selling NHL and NCAA sports games. I will pause here just to give a little primer. So, the Lord of the Rings wiki, of course there's a wiki, summarizes that the Lord of the Rings were written by J.R.R. Tolkien, published by George Allen and Unwin in the UK, first released July 29, 1954, the first book of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring. The Two Towers came along November 11, 1954, and the trilogy was completed with The Return of the King, October 20, 1955. Lord of the Rings is an epic high fantasy novel, later fitted out as a trilogy. The story begins as a sequel to Tolkien's earlier fantasy book, The Hobbit, and soon developed into a much larger story. Written in stages between 37 and 49, with much of it being written during World War II, it was originally published in three volumes in 54 and 55. It has since been reprinted numerous times and translated into at least 38 different languages. The action is set in what the author conceived to be the lands of the real earth, inhabited by humanity, but placed in a fictional past, before our history, but after the fall of his version of Atlantis, which he called Numenor. Oh, I didn't get that that was supposed to be Atlantis. Interesting. Tolkien gave this setting a modern English name, Middle-earth, a rendering of the Old English Middengird. story concerns people such as hobbits, elves, men, dwarves, wizards, and orcs, called goblins in The Hobbit, and centers on the Ring of Power, made by the Dark Lord Sauron, starting from quiet beginnings in the Shire. The story ranges across Middle-earth and follows the courses of the War of the Ring. The main story is followed by six appendices that provide a wealth of historical and linguistic background material, as well as an index listing every character, place, song, and sword. Along with Tolkien's other writings, The Lord of the Rings has been subjected to extensive analysis of its literary themes and origins. Although a major work itself, the story is merely the last movement of a larger mythological cycle or legendarium that Tolkien had worked on for many years since 1917. Influences on the earlier work in Lord of the Rings include philosophy, mythology, religion, as well as earlier fantasy works and Tolkien's experiences in World War I. So there you go. You could spend days talking about more stuff, but either you guys already know of this stuff, or you don't really care, or if you are curious, I would encourage you to go look this up, because it is an interesting story, even if you're only a casual fan. If you appreciate great accomplishments in writing, world-building, influences on culture, Lord of the Rings is an example, a great example of all of those. So even if you're only a casual fan like me, you can certainly respect what he accomplished. Computer and video games, inspired by Tolkien's works set Middle-earth, have been created by... Electronic Arts, Vivendi Games, Melbourne House, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment, on and on and on. Among the official games, in 1982, Melbourne House began a series of licensed Lord of the Rings graphical interactive fiction text adventure games with The Hobbit. Again, that was considered quite advanced at the time with interactive characters that moved between locations independent of the player and Melbourne House's English with an I text parser which accepted full sentence commands where the norm was simple two-word verb noun commands. They went on to release 86's Fellowship of the Ring, 87's Shadow of Mordor, and 89's The Crack of Doom. A BBC micro-text adventure released around the same time was unrelated to Melbourne's titles except for the literary origin. In 87, Melbourne House released War in Middle-Earth, a real-time strategy game. Konami also released an action strategy game titled J.R.R. Tolkien's Riders of Rohan. Journey to Rivendell in 83, 
1990, Interplay, in collaboration with Electronic Arts, who would later obtain the licenses to the film trilogy, released Lord of the Rings Volume 1, a special CD-ROM version of which featured cutscenes from Ralph Bakshi's animated adaptation. And then Lord of the Rings Volume 2, The Two Towers, a series of role-playing video games. A third installment was planned, but never released. Thereafter, no official Lord of the Rings titles were released until the making of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings film trilogy for New Line Cinema in 2001-2003. Electronic Arts got the license for the three films. Vivendi Games obtained the license to produce games based on the books from Tolkien Enterprises. This was unusual. Electronic Arts produced no adaptation of The Fellowship of the Ring, but produced adaptations named The Lord of the Rings to The Two Towers, which covered events of both the first two films, and The Lord of the Rings Return of the King, whereas Vivendi only produced a game covering the first volume of Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Vivendi's access to the book rights prevented them from using material from the film, but permitted them to include elements of The Lord of the Rings which were not in the films. EA, on the other hand, were not permitted to do that, as they were only licensed to develop games based on the films, which left out elements of the original story or deviated in places. In 2003, Vivendi produced an adaptation of The Hobbit aimed at a younger audience, called The Hobbit, as well as a real-time strategy game, The Lord of the Rings War of the Ring, both based on Tolkien's literature. There's also a real-time strategy game, The Lord of the Rings The Battle for Middle-Earth, and a turn-based role-playing game, The Lord of the Rings The Third Age, from 2004, and a PSP-exclusive title, The Lord of the Rings Tactics, in 2005. EA got the rights in 2005 to both films, both the films and the books. So, The Lord of the Rings The Battle for Middle-Earth 2, incorporate elements of the film adaptations and the original Tolkien-esque lore. EA also began work on an open-world role-playing video game called The Lord of the Rings The White Council, but development of the game was canceled in 2007. On and on and on, Turbine Inc. got into the game in 2005, and again in 2008, 2011, 2012. Pandemic Studios produced something called The Lord of the Rings Conquest, using the same engine used in Star Wars Battlefront in early 2009 on the PC and all 7th generation video game systems except the Wii and PSP. There's also a Nintendo DS version of that game. Warner Brothers got into it from 2010 to the present, including darker, more violent Middle-Earth video games, rated Mature, the first of which was Lord of the Rings War in the North, an action role-playing game that takes place in Northern Middle-Earth. There have also been unofficial games like Ang Band from 1990, a roguelike based loosely on the Silmarillion, Elendor, and two MUDs, I don't know what a MUD is, based on the Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers. A homebrew text adventure was created for the Atari 2600 based on the Fellowship of the Ring by Adam Thornton. The game, which is separate and not related to the unreleased Parcher Brothers game, was self-published in 2002. I'm guessing that's the homebrew that I mentioned earlier that the game we're talking about this week is not. The game Minecraft has been used extensively as a tool to recreate Middle-Earth, most notably the servers MCME, Minecraft or Middle-Earth, and Ardacraft, A-R-D-A, Craft. In addition to large-scale mods like the Lord of the Rings mod, bringing Middle-Earth to Minecraft, furthermore, the Middle-Earth DEM project released a playable data set compiled for the Otira engine, which attempts to model the terrain of the full Middle-Earth in great detail and to feature notable landmarks within the world as 3D models. I don't know what any of that means. Delta 4 released the two parody games, The Boggit, with a B, in 86, and Board of the Rings in 1985. If anyone has any thoughts about 
Hobbit Lord of the Rings games, let me know. All right. After the break, we covet the one short story to rule them all. Or, you know, kill a couple minutes of your time with this dumb thing I wrote. Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell for all you Lord of the Rings freaks. This should be interesting. I am not a Lord of the Ring freak. Henry, are you a Lord of the Ring freak? Mm-hmm. Eh. Alright, so let's see what's going on with this game. Title screen, Lord of the Rings, puts me very much in the mind of uh, 1980s fantasy adventure games like this, which I didn't do a lot of, but I did some of. This definitely looks like one of them. So let's see how it holds up. Jazzy music, I like it. Here we are in Hobbiton. Lovely Hobbiton. Those houses don't really strike me as Hobbit houses. They look more like Swiss chalets to me, but alright. Here's me. Hi, me. Let's see if I remember right. If I go to the left, that should be the road. That's not the road, that's the forest. If I go up, there's more Hobbiton. Here's the, the evil guy. Wraith, Nazgul. Wait, no, that's me actually. Oh, that's me using the ring. Haha. There's a bird. Hi, bird. I don't know what these structures are supposed to be. Let me go back this way. Where's the map? I'm supposed to be able to see a map. I guess that's the map. Alright, that's me, right there. That's my hand. Hi. In the forest. Not supposed to spend a lot of time in the forest. Bad for you. Now I'm back here again. I guess this is the road. I'm headed north. Whee! I'm in the forest again. Where am I? I got a long way to go. I gotta start booking. Telling me that I'm unhealthy. Um, I gotta be honest, this game gets boring pretty fast. But I dig the sunrise and sunset stuff going on at the top of the screen. That's pretty cool. Forest, I guess looks like a forest. Like I said, I don't know what's going on on this screen.
unpleasant noise. do anything. You can't really fight anybody uh, in this game. All you can do is run. How are we doing on the map? Alright, there I am. I am off the road. I'm maybe halfway there. Wait, am I dead? Oh, I guess I'm dead. But I made it halfway. A life halfway made is a good life, I guess. Except for that whole letting Sauron get the ring and destroying the world. I'm pretty okay with it. Back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and odd thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So, here's the thing about Lord of the Rings Journey to Rivendell. It does get boring pretty fast. It looks kind of cool. It does kind of bring you back to the uh, 1980s era of text-based or other fantasy video games. It looks like those games, because it was one. And like I said, it did kind of put me in the mind of that text adventure game, Lord of the Rings game that I had, that I can't remember the name of. And that was kind of fun, because I had fun playing that game. And, you know, I was never a huge fantasy guy. I play a little Dungeons and Dragons. I, you know, like I said, I read the Tolkien books, that kind of thing. So I appreciated you know, this sort of world, you know, messing around these sort of worlds, but I was never hugely uh, into them, but I was into them enough that I liked hanging out there every now and then. So playing this game kind of put me back in that mindset. If anything, kind of makes me want to play some Dungeons and Dragons. I have sat down with Henry a few times with our Dungeons and Dragons starter set that we got at a, some convention. But he doesn't have the patience. He's 11 and big time ADHD, so he doesn't have the patience to sit there and figure out the rules. He mostly just wants to play with the dice, which I, I don't. I don't fault him for that. The dice are kind of cool. But yeah, playing this game, Chilly Sunday, kind of makes me want to sit down and play some Dungeons & Dragons, of all things. So, maybe I will. But first, I gotta do this. E 
It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled Fellowship of the String. The beginning of the end of their rope came for the members of the Tangled Cable, or Cabal, during a meeting of the leaders of each of the Cabal's stores. They sold string, chain, and other implements of binding. They and only they. Any new upstart in the neighborhood, say a paperclip purveyor or a Velcro brand strip distributor, would find itself tangled in a twisted knot of pain and regret. If you needed something contained, collected, bound, or bundled, in this town you used rope or chain or twine. Sold in this neighborhood. No arguments. Due to the recent abrupt closure of End of the Line, the leaders of the various bindings and binding accessory sellers needed to redivide the territory and find new customers. End of the Line had been in the neighborhood since the beginning of the line, ironically, and now that they were gone, some people needed to be reminded that if you need to tie something down, you best not go elsewhere. But before the twine wind, high-level discussions must be had among the members of the cable, or cabal. The leaders of the tangled cable, <sighs> cabal, wove their way through the roped-off corridors in the basement underneath the Fellowship of the String, a local purveyor of the finest kite string, twine, and other binding materials. Fellowship of the String's owner, Lenny McTie, a reed-thin, lanky man in wire-rimmed glasses, called the meeting to order. Chain of Fools store owner, Chet, led the group to their seats at the table, huffing with the exertion of moving his large physique across an empty room. Chet was an intimidating heavy, but his loyalty couldn't be broken. Let's go. Let's go, he said. We don't have time for this, Kate, the owner of Knott's Landing, said. We need to be our own stores, untangling the mess the market is in. Kate fidgeted constantly with the magic kit, unbreakable knot thing people put in little kids' Christmas stockings. Now, now, Chet responded, the finest chains are forged in fire. Yeah, yeah, Kate said. How many chains you sold in the last year? Chet huffed, but said nothing. People, Lenny McTie said from the head of the table, we find ourselves as businesses in a bit of a Gordian knot. Saul, from Stringer Things, snorted at that. <laughs> Strung up our own self-confidence, if you ask me. The string market is dangling by a thread. We should have seen it coming, what with all the loosening of morals and norms and bundles. When was the last time a publisher threw tied-up bundles of newspapers on the Newsies' porches to be delivered? Um, 1934, I think, said Kate. A nervous-looking newcomer in sunglasses slowly slipped into the room unobserved, each step seemingly reluctant, as if being pulled back into the stairway. He sat in a corner watching the proceedings. Point is, Saul continued, the market for tying things is being pulled out from under us by Velcro brand fasteners and apathy. People just leave stuff scattered all over now. Madness, Chet grumbled. We don't need to get into that now, Lenny McTie said. I called you here today because I have new sales leads. He held up a folded piece of paper. And by sales leads, you get that I mean people we can lasso into our cable, or cabal, right? The stranger in the corner sat up straighter, vibrating with tension. Better off Thread's owner, the well-dressed, though tightly wound, Boris Banner, expressed what they all were thinking. They'll hang us out to dry. They always do. 
Chet started to say something about weakest links, but Banner wasn't done. I know this cable, uh, cabal, is a patchwork of businesses and goals, but we're also a patchwork family, stitched together by a common purpose, to tie the world again. And make money, Chet said. Yeah, that too, Kate said. Boris Banner shook his head sadly. Coming apart at the seams, this cable, uh, cabal, is. Anyway, Lenny McTie said, do you all want these leads or not? Hurry up or I'll zip tie your privates to the leg of this table, Kate said. We sell cuffs for that, Chet commented. All right, Lenny McTie said, unfolding the paper in his hand. I have it on good authority. My brother, who works in adhesives, is dating this girl in the advertising department whose dog walker buys her leashes from... Just get on with it, Saul groaned. I left a bag of string cheese on my dashboard. Okay, Lenny McTie said. So there's this new upstart called Upstart Kites opening it. At that moment, the sweaty stranger in the corner screamed, Benton Bungie! And, but still firmly planted in his seat, stretched his torso across the room, snagged the paper with the leads from Lenny McTie's hand, and retracted into his seat. He then stretched backward toward the exit, and the whole of him was gone in an instant. The tangled cable, er, cabal, looked around at each other in stunned disbelief. <sighs> Bungee cords, Chet said. I hate them. Boris Banner took a more philosophical approach. Perhaps we should look on this as a wake-up call, that the times are changing and that we must change with them. The others considered this for a moment. Finally, Kate spoke for the group. Where are the zip ties? Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod and Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. Head over to Apple Podcasts and cast into the Pit of Sauron, or whatever, the one five-star review to unite them all. Email the show at AtariBytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, check us out on Instagram. And don't forget, you still have the option to call us. We're not going to answer the phone, but you can leave us a voicemail at 563-265-1978 to tell us pretty much anything you want, and we'll probably play it on the show. Go ahead, it'll be fun. Check out the website, www, that's because that's how websites work, carnivalofleecreations.com. Over there you're going to find information, social media, show links for this show, Atari Bites, and my other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown. Also over there is information about other stuff that I've done including books that I've written, like It is the holiday season, so check out my holiday-themed novel, In the Saint Nick of Time, a sort of Santa Claus story for adults, and my short story collection, Misery Banana, very short stories inspired by old games and odd thoughts. Both of those would make excellent gifts for yourself or stocking stuffers for others, or reverse that if you like. Also consider supporting the show financially. Help keep the lights on here in the podcast studio by subscribing over there at the Patreon. If you do that, you could get bonus stuff. You could get access to episodes early, not necessarily having to wait until Sundays. Uh, if you subscribe at the $2 level, that's it, 2 bucks. At the $3 level, you get bonus stuff. Not just these episodes, not just these episodes early, 
but you also get video, really poorly done video, of the field report from each episode, and occasionally other stuff that we drop over there that you're only going to get to see or hear or whatever if you are on the Patreon at the $3 level. So please consider doing that. Make it your New Year's resolution if you like. Thanks to existing patrons, Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, Aerospike, M. West, and Jim Goble. You're all fine folks, and you know, despite that, you do need some supervision. So I hope that more folks will join the Patreon to keep an eye on you. All right, I need to go finish the pie from Thanksgiving, so we're about out of here. All that's left is to tell you what's coming up next episode. Next time on Atari Bytes. Elevator action. All I can think of is Aerosmith loving an elevator. I'm going to assume this game isn't that. But who knows? I chose this because we played, was it Infiltrate? That people have called sort of a, a another version of elevator action. I don't know. Some game we played recently mentioned in my research, they kept mentioning elevator action. So I decided I should play that game. So I'm going to next week on the show. And then I'm going to present you some sort of short story, which I haven't come up with yet or written or anything, but I'm going to guess there's an elevator involved. Spoiler for a story that doesn't exist yet. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Oh, 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 oh,